2: The Premier League is back. Hello, and welcome to episode 44 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, We'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they will be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and once again we've got a full house. That means leading the line around the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke?
3: Yeah, really good, Dan. You know, it's been great to get some football back now and we've, we've got something to get our teeth into. Um, and I'll tell you now, there is a lot to get our teeth into, isn't there? So looking forward to this one.
2: Yeah, we won't go hungry on this show. Put it that way. And of course, I cannot forget your strike partner either. That's Drew. He'll be offering a supply line for the other side of the pond. Drew, how have you been this past week?
1: Oh, I'm absolutely fantastic, Dan. Chelsea won. Christian Pulisic scored. The Premier League is back. Everything in the world is right.
2: It is just about. If Spurs would want to be even better, but enough of that. Right, so let's do the social media bits first. I we'll be talking into the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Tracy 983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. If you want to become a shareholder, of which there are now over 300, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe. And also, if you like it, leave a review so we move up the league table. If you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Audioboom. Well, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Of course, don't forget our content partners at lastwordonfootball.com. Here you can check out the excellent work that Drew does. Also, the bits that I do after you've listened to this show. Don't read the piece about David Luiz getting you new that I did last week. It's absolute nonsense. That's never <laughs> happening. So that is the ultimate kiss of death. More of that later. But now it's time to really go live. And where should we go first? I guess we have to go to Villa Park. Not only because it was first in the list of 12 matches, but it arguably, no, it's not an argument, it generated the biggest talking point of that game week. So, Cole, coming up to the end of the first half, you see the ball approaching Villa's goal before the interval and you think to yourself, I'm sure that's just gone in.
3: Yeah, uh, this, this was an absolute horror show of a decision, wasn't it? Um, and you, you just kind of wonder, you know, Again, what, yeah, it just puts VAR into this fast category yet again, doesn't it? Because, you know, it's quite clear, you know, when you watch replays that the ball is over the line. Now, you can understand maybe the referees watch if that's not working, it doesn't go off. Okay, fair enough. You know, you can accept that, you know, technology won't always work. But surely the guys running the VAR system then can look at that incident, actually go, oh, hang on, that's. That's not just over the line. That's well in, um, and that should have been a goal. And they basically, you know, can kind of talk to the referee and say, "Hold up, you need to stop here. There's been a mistake. Although your watch hasn't gone off, that ball was clearly over the line, uh, and you know it should be one nil to Sheffield United." Um, I just don't understand how you get that wrong, how that decision isn't changed. Um and again, like I say, it just puts everything into a farce and you know, these are the incidents, aren't they, that we want VAR for. These are the incidents that no one could moan about if VAR stepped in and, and called the game back and said that was actually a goal. We'd all sit there and go, hands up, it's worked it's worked as we want it to. Um so, you know, the game wasn't the best game, but that one incident, again, just puts VAR in a spotlight that you just think, well, it's not working.
2: With that being the case, Drew, we've been sold the notion that Hawkeye has such a small margin of error that nearly everything gets picked up. Therefore, how on earth did this freak set of angles conclude that it wasn't a goal?
1: There's absolutely no excuse for this whatsoever because, I mean, the the replays are there. Whether those come from VAR or Hawkeye, I mean, you can see clearly that the ball was over the line. So this excuse of, well, the players blocked it, the post, the camera said. I mean, if, the, if, the, if it failed, it failed. Just own up to it. I think that's kind of the biggest problem for me is that no one is taking ownership of this. Everyone's trying to pass the buck, right? With Hawkeye, oh, well, it's the first time the players in the way, the post. If you look at VR, oh, well, the watch didn't go off, and so we didn't know if we can intervene. No one's taking responsibility for this. And... That's a huge issue when it comes to the footballing side of it, because Aston Villa, this is a point that could you know help them stay up this year and help keep you know one hundred million dollars by staying in the Premier League. On the reverse, Sheffield United dropped three points that they should have gotten or i 'm sorry dropped two points that they should have gotten uh, with a win, and they're fighting for a Champions League spot you know, not just the Europa League spot. And so this could dent their chances in that. So this is a huge mistake, a huge problem. And again, without anyone taking responsibility, I think that's kind of the thing that is most maddening about this. Because everyone could see that it should have been a goal. We have systems in place, as Carl alluded to, that are supposed to take care of this. That's the point of VAR. And it's hurting, or or it hurts one side, uh, Sheffield United on the pitch way more than it does Aston Villa. But It's getting things wrong when the sole purpose of both of these, Hawkeye and VAR, is to get things right. And it failed immensely. No one's taking responsibility. And as we've talked about so many times on this show, if the referees cannot do their jobs, then they do not deserve to be there. If they cannot get the calls right on the pitch, live, or from watching replays, then they don't deserve to be there. And that's the biggest problem right now.
2: I mean... I guess what was the most damning was the fact that usually in that scenario, within seconds or a minute at most, you then see the graphic saying no goal and the, you know, the distance of how tight it was to being a goal. That didn't materialise and the penny drops, you think, actually, that must have been a goal then. So, Cole, later that same day, there's a bit of a grovelling apology or quite a bit of a grovelling apology from Hawkeye. But the damage is done, isn't it? You know, the Premier League restarts, we're triumphing a three-month return and it's like, oh, a bit of egg on our face.
3: Yeah, and and as Drew said, I think the biggest thing you have to look at here, uh, and especially when you consider the the result that they get after that, you know, those extra two points make sure Sheffield United are still keeping in contact with Man United and Wolves in the race for the the top four, top six. Um, Now they've lost those points and they're now having to play catch-up again when they really shouldn't have been. And as we say, Norwich, you know, Norwich are suddenly, you know, a point, further away from villa um, when they should have been you know possibly shouldn't have been that point ahead all those ramifications you know they all have massive ramifications those things and this is why you know we're all behind technology coming in because the idea is is that these sort of grievances and these sort of errors wouldn't happen anymore. Um, you know, the minuscule offsides, I don't think anyone's that interested in that. You know, the big toe, if a bloke's on offside by a big toe, none of us were moaning about that in the first place. But it would have been these incidents, you know, like the Pedro Mendez incident at Old Trafford years ago, when, you know, Carroll throws the ball in behind him. And it's, it's clearly over the line, yet there's no technology. So, you know, the goal is just not given because the liner and ref are not up to speed. And this was what everyone was saying. These are the things that we want to get right and make sure they don't happen going forward. Um, and this game clearly showed that that's not happening. And again, you know, it's not Sheffield United. You know, it's it's not given them the win they should have had, which then gets their momentum going again. And of course, you know, we no one knows if that affected them in the following game. Um, and again, it is. It's just these issues really shouldn't be happening. As we say, whether the technology happens or not, as soon as these guys are watching those repays and it was clear from those repays, you didn't need, oh, should we intervene? Should we not intervene? Um, or I don't know. You've got to, someone has to sit there and say, I'm owning this. That was over the line. Let's call this back. It's a goal. Sheffield United winning 1-0. And and you get on with it. Um, it's just an utter disgrace, to be honest.
2: I guess in the Premier League headquarters, they'll be hoping that this one could be dusted under the carpet quite quickly. What they don't want is the scenario where Aston Villa stay up on goal difference with an extra point in the bank. Sheffield United miss out on Europe due to dropping two points. Then you're thinking, oh dear, we have dropped a bollock here. Admittedly, it'd be too late. You can't do anything. You can't reverse the decision because it is final. But I think they're sort of banking on that. Hopefully, Villa finish 19th and are down... Sheffield United collapse and finish 8th, and they can just think, oh, okay, it was a blip, but a very costly blip all the same. Talking of Sheffield United, Drew, we spoke last week about whether they could get out of the blocks quickly. When you consider that game, yes, technology denied them, but they were awful against Newcastle on Sunday. So that three-month break has done them no favours at all.
1: Yeah, both matches against Aston Villa and against Newcastle, they were slow, they were lethargic. And I think a lot of teams showed this, this weekend that... It's going to take a little bit of time, right? I mean, I think a lot of leagues that have come back already have showed the same thing. The first game back usually is a little bit slower, and especially teams like Sheffield United, where they have certain patterns that they always run, where you need that connection between players uh, for what they plan to do and their tactics, it wasn't quite there. So it makes sense that they were a little bit slower out of the gate, Um, but You know, these are massive points dropped uh, when it comes to chasing the top four or top seven, I guess, When it for the Europa League. Kind of like Carl talked about was – and you, Dan, right? They're playing catch-up now. And losing, I think, at Newcastle was even more disappointing because they had absolutely no fight in them. They had absolutely no no bite to their play. And the fact that they kept giving up goals to (laughs) Newcastle and most uh, particularly – Joelinton, who has not had a good season, that I thought was a very damning result for Sheffield United, and this is very disappointing because if they're not going to be able to come out and put in at least put up a fight, let alone put in you know a, a terrific performance like they did for the uh, beginning part of the season, if they can't even put up a fight, then I don't see how they're going to finish in the in the Europa League spots, and that's kind of a worry because they did look so good; they had this magical run. You know, for the past few seasons, right, coming up through the leagues and then now in the Premier League this year. And unfortunately, I think this three-month break has hit them hard. And I really hope it doesn't because, you know, based on a majority of the season, they do deserve to get into the Europa League and arguably maybe the Champions League. But if these final, you know, eight or nine games are going to be slow, they're going to be lethargic, they're not going to be very sharp and that's going to keep them out, I think that's pretty disappointing because they have been a great team to watch this year. They've been fun. They've been been exciting. But in these two matches, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to end the season strong.
2: Yeah, I mean, two matches is an incredibly small sample, so we shouldn't make overriding conclusions. That said, on the basis of those two matches, I think now they'll, they'll fade away. I think the break is the worst thing that could have happened to them. They've lost that momentum, and I think the season will, unfortunately for the Blades, peter out. Let's go back to Aston Villa, Carl, because they also lost to Chelsea. Now, first half, where on earth did that Villa goal come from? Because that was really against the run of play, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, we were watching that game, you know, it, it was kind of one of them, when it, where they were camped in their own half and Chelsea were knocking it around quite confidently. Weren't looking ultra dangerous, but they were kind of confident on the ball, um, looking well in control. And then, as you say, all of a sudden they get caught and, and Villa get themselves, you know, in the lead, and you're thinking, right, hang on, here we go. Where has this come from? But you always had the sense that Chelsea um, could potentially get themselves back in that game, and you know, the result I think kind of reflects the, the true nature of that game, which was Chelsea were, you know, the better side and probably deserved to take all three points at the end of it.
2: Yeah, it sort of felt like a two-one kind of game, really. I think the score mirrored the activity on the field. Drew, as for Villa's goal, I guess Keppa could be credited for the initial save, but when you're palming it back straight into the danger area, it's always going to ask more questions, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Keppa didn't do great with that goal, but I mean, or I'm sorry, with with the with the first shot, I, as you said, he, he parried it back right into the centre, but there's also a reason that he got dropped for an ageing veteran who isn't that great in Willy Caballero earlier this season, so... I think that was kind of very emblematic of Kepa's season um, and Chelsea's as well. But, I mean, if you look at that goal, this is what – and the game. This is what Chelsea has been pretty much all year, right? In attack, most times they look sharp. They look quick. They take a lot of shots. They look exciting. They look fun. But then defensively, they let themselves down, right? They. I mean, if you look at that goal, it was kind of a, a, a quasi-set piece where uh, Graylish was just kind of holding the ball in the right half space – and then he lays it off for, for Douglas Lewis, who sends in the cross, right? If you look at Chene, uh, Chelsea's center backs, Antonio Rudiger, nowhere to be found. Andres Christensen, nowhere to be found. Uh, you know, the rest of the defenders that were there, nowhere. And so this is kind of what Chelsea has done this entire year is the defense lets them down. They give up a goal when they shouldn't. This one came in the first half as opposed to the second or in stoppage time or something like that. Um, but this is kind of a sign of the the immaturity of Chelsea, the the young players they have. I know Antonio Rudiger isn't that young anymore. Um, he should be more experienced and, and mature when it comes to that. But this is what you've seen out of Chelsea. And so it wasn't a surprise to me that a goal came against a run of play like this. Um, I was kind of actually surprised that Chelsea finally was able to get a couple of goals in the second half because they dominated everything, but they weren't able to f- actually hit the back of the net. So when that one came, I thought that was an explosion. It felt like the goal was coming, but I was starting to doubt it as long as, that, as the game continued to go on. Um, but I think this game, very emblematic of Chelsea's season in total. And it was good that they got the three points because they really needed it.
2: Drew, I'll stay with you because you just touched on the equaliser. You need a hero. Enter Captain America. What a turnaround.
1: Absolutely. Christian Pulisic. I, I I couldn't be more happy for this guy. I have Captain America is one nickname. Cristiano Pulisic is another one if he were Brazilian. Uh, we have Christian Golisic, Christian Pulisic. I mean, he absolutely changed the game. And he's showed on several occasions this year that he can be a game changer for Chelsea in the Champions League, in the Premier League, right in the fall before injury. He had a, a stretch of maybe six weeks where he was pretty much running the show. And in this game, The same thing, right? He comes in, five minutes later, he gets the goal. He gets on the end of a cross at the back post. And it it was great. It was a brilliant first touch that he took on the half volley. And he can be and should be, I think, starting for Chelsea up front every single match. I mean, this game showed that when he's in there, he can be a difference maker. And I know a lot of people right now say, you know, injuries have been a problem for him. And sure, absolutely. But when he's fit, as he is now... He can be Chelsea's best player and most influential uh, player. And I hope he continues to show that and uh, begins starting each and every match.
2: And, Carl, in terms of a turnaround, double quick time. They get one goal, then they get another. I guess that sums up Villa's fragile defence because they're always good, most occasions, for shipping two goals. And that is exactly what came home to Roos on Sunday.
3: Yeah, you know, they they just had a two-minute period, didn't they, where they've switched off. And, and unfortunately, that's kind of happened to them too many times throughout the season, isn't it? And, and hence why they're in the position they are. You know, you think back to the Spurs and Villa game, don't we, Dan, where, you know, they're they're set for a point um, you just have a hopeful long ball goes through and the centre-back lets the ball go under his foot and then sons away and scores. And this game kind of, again, defensively, you show their weaknesses. You know, they get pegged back level, but you think, OK, just regoot, keep it solid. You know, try and get ourselves back in the game, get some possession. And within another minute or so, they've let themselves down. They're, they're not marking the way they should be. The ball finds Giroud. He swivels. It's a nice turn. You know, gets a lucky break with a shot getting a deflection. But at the same time, it's in. And then, you know, the game's gone then at that point. Because in no way did you think Villa could get themselves back in the game at all once they went 2-1 down. But that just shows their problems defensively this year. You know, they've not been able to kind of concede, regroup and just keep themselves solid. They, They concede. And then suddenly their heads go and the concentration's gone. And before you know it, the game is gone. Um, And that's something in the Premier League you just can't do, unfortunately, because the quality that each team have, or most teams have up front will punish you if, if you're sloppy like that.
2: And, Carl, I'll stay with you. If we go back to earlier that day, Newcastle, we mentioned them. The break certainly did Joe Linson some good. He now has doubled his Premier League tally to two goals. That said, though, after that woeful first half, <laughs> that woeful first half miss, he needed to pull something out of the bag, didn't he?
3: Yeah, that's right. You know, he hasn't set the world on fire since being, since going there, has he? Um, so he needed a, a, he needed a spark. And I think all Newcastle fans will now be hoping that this game was a spark that can get him going. Um, we've seen signs of there's a really good player there. You know, he can be really, he can look really good at certain moments. Um and, yeah, as you say, the miss, the first miss is, is horrendous. And you'd be kind of thinking, wow, you know, those are the chances you've got to be taking at this level. Because, again, those are a chance that, you know, you, you don't take that chance and suddenly the other team go down the other end and score. And before you know it, that, that chance has possibly cost you the game. Fortunately, in this occasion, that wasn't the case. He made amends. um, And that was a great result for Newcastle um, at full time because, you know, that is a win that's desperately needed against a good side. um, And that will give them some confidence and momentum now.
2: And, Drew, as for Steve Bruce, that's safety now for the Magpies. No doubt about it. They're staying up. So you'd have to say, without any argument, a a successful season under his stewardship. Now, when you consider that fans didn't even want to sing his name at the start of the season. Obviously, they can't at the end, but he has turned people's mentality around quite quickly, hasn't he?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll be the first one to say, at the beginning of the year, I said 100% guaranteed that Newcastle was going to get relegated. And now, like you said, they're they're completely safe. You know, they're mid-table. And congratulations to them. They've, they've earned it with some good performances. This one against Sheffield United, um, earlier in the season, they've had a few others as well. And so I think Steve Bruce... Does deserve a lot of credit. I mean, think about this: if Rafa Benitez got as much credit as he did for for bringing them back up, uh, keeping them up, getting the most out of a squad that you know is probably a, a championship uh, quality squad playing in the Premier League, if he got all the credit, so should Steve Bruce because he's done the same thing, if not done better. So I think he deserves a massive amount of credit. He has. Stuck with Joe Ellington throughout most of this season and in this game, right? He kind of paid dividends on that, which is good. Um, So, yeah, I think Steve Bruce definitely deserves a lot of credit for this. And with the new ownership group and, you know, who knows what's happening with that and whether they're going to come in, you know, most likely he's not going to be keeping his job. And that's unfortunate for him because he's done a, a fantastic job this year. But I do think that if other Premier League jobs open up, he should be getting a call from them because he's done a he's done phenomenally well this year with Newcastle United. Um, Defensively, they've been for not every match, but a lot of times they've been uh, solid, which has helped them immensely. Right. He has gotten the best out of probably Miguel Almiron, Jarlinton, not so much, but hopefully for the end of the season, uh, he's going to be doing better. Um, But Steve Bruce, Steve Bruce deserves a massive amount of credit. He's done a great job with them keeping them safe with, you know, uh, was it eight games to go or seven games remaining, whatever it is that they have. You know, congratulations to him. He's done phenomenally well.
2: And Carl, if you go to East London now, West Ham versus Wolves. Personally, I thought West Ham looked okay in the first 60 minutes. They didn't look like they were going to lose, but I don't think they really threatened much going forward. That said, when you've got a plan B, which consists of a Dharma Traore, you're always going to be in for some difficulty, aren't you?
3: yeah i mean he came on and changed the game didn't he um i will admit you know before the break he was on fire wasn't he and you're kind of thinking this guy's something to, to attract some attention now from big clubs um and you're still sitting there thinking yep yeah, okay we know he's got blistering pace has he got the consistency now in say like delivery um and, and kind of game craft and i think you know when he came on in this game, he just kind of showed you that he does look to have developed and kind of now knows, you know, a little bit more about when to do things, when not to. Um, the delivery for the first goal was a class cross, wasn't it? You know, and you know if you're going to back off and try and give him that little bit of space to move in, then you're going to get what happens, basically, because he is someone that you can't give any time or even, you know, a minuscule bit of space because he's explosive and he'll get past you before you even know where you are. Um, And from that point on, the game changed. Wolves took over. Um, West Ham didn't have an answer to what they were doing. And then, obviously, you know, Wolves go on uncomfortably, you know, win the game, see it out. And, that, and that's a great start for them, um, a great momentum builder and just what they needed. But for West Ham, of course, it, it's, it's a terrible result and one that kind of, I think, really throws their Premier League future into some real doubt right now.
2: And, Drew, with player sharpness being as it is, you know, rather fragile, a bit rough around the edges... Do Wolves now have a perfect plan to execute between now and the end of the season? Tired opposition legs, unleash Triore, get the job done. That's going to be the ace in the hole now, isn't it?
1: I definitely think it is. And I thought Nuno used Triore perfectly in this one because he was going up against those tired legs. And I mean, look, he's already lightning quick. He's already, you know, hitting the gym and, and really big and strong. And so he has not only pace, but he has power as well. Um, but this is perfect, especially when you have... Teams that are going to be playing every three days, every four days, and they're not used to that. They had didn't have the full, uh, you know, preseason training, so to speak, before project restart. I think Triore coming on for the last half hour, last twenty minutes is going to be absolutely perfect. It's a huge ace up the sleeve, and you saw it right now, or in this game. And something that I thought w- was really good was Wolves look to me like, especially when he came on. They know exactly what the plan is. They're executing it, and so maybe in the first half is a little bit slower, and, and it didn't work out. But in that second half with Triore, I want to say it was like just a minute or two before the the cross for the goal, he sent in another one. It was the exact same thing. Got to the byline, sent in a cross uh, centrally towards you know towards a spot, uh, and nobody was there for it. But then he repeats it just a, a minute or two later, and this time Jimenez was there for it, and so I think that Wolves actually they have their plan down pat and when Triore comes on in the second half he's going to be a game changer for them that other teams probably won't be able to to keep up with and Wolves have that uh, experience this year of playing every three days playing every four days right being in the Europa League on Thursdays and then playing on Sunday so they know what that's like and I think they're going to be able to manage this situation much better than a lot of other teams because they know what it's like. They have the right players in place. They have that ace uh, up the sleeve in triore. And so I think Wolves are going to be really, really strong for this last stretch run of the season.
2: Now, that win was one of seven games that finished nil-nil at time. So can we attribute that, Carl, to players still trying to find their sharpness? And why does that first 45 minutes of stalemate make such a difference?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think you know all these first early games, you know, I think you're going to see teams going out there and and they're not going to try and go, you know, mad straight away. They're just going to fill themselves into the game. Um try and get the touch, the feel of the ball, passing and all those sort of things right. Because, you know, I think you you can have some training games that are cut into three quarters, etc. And but they don't really mimic the real thing, a full ninety minutes, full go. Um so I think that's all we're seeing. I think we are just seeing matches that are starting off slow. Players are getting fitness back, match fitness back, they're getting their sharpness back. And that might take a little while to come. Um, so I, I would think you know we might still even see the next set of games this weekend be a little bit slow, um, not the most exciting games you'll see. Um, and then hopefully after that, they'll probably pick up the way they should do once they've got that match sharpness back.
2: With that said, Drew, if you look at the first 11 games of the season back in August, five of those were also nil-nil at half-time. So I guess that further reinforces the point about lack of sharpness.
1: Yeah, kind of. Uh, but I think this is definitely a little bit... Uh, There's more added on to it without the fans, right, because this is different, without any type of sound or noise, like no music playing in the background in the stadium or anything uh, once the match starts. So I think those add to it. Plus, you know, the water breaks kind of slow things down a little bit as well um, in terms of play. But that also gives managers uh, a timeout, so to speak, to kind of rearrange what they're doing, to make some adjustments tactically. Um, And so I think all of those things are kind of combining right now together together. To cause all of these these nil nils at the half but thankfully there was a lot more scoring uh, in the second half but I, I think it, it was just this first weekend right we saw in the Bundesliga as well um, and other leagues that are coming back teams are coming out of the blocks a little bit slower um, and I mean even here you, you've seen some rotation from some of the teams they've had some teenagers playing in different things so that of course adds to the uh, the misery a bit in the first half um, but I don't think it's going to be that big of an issue I think in the in the following weeks that are coming up and, and matches, I think we're going to see plenty of scoring. I don't think it's going to continue to drag on through the first halves like this.
2: Okay, talking about a lack of sharpness, where do we start with Arsenal? Because they've had an absolutely rotten restart. I guess first we need to go to the Etihad and Cole. The absolute shambles that David Luiz offered up in his brief cameo, I think it's fair to say we won't be seeing him in Arsenal colours ever again, will
3: we? Yeah, he'd obviously, you know, he's, he's got his FIFA mode back on, didn't he, in this game, Um, (laughs) you know, all over the shot, you know, I I, I was wondering, you know, when he came on, he did, you know, the the crossing and looking up to the sky. I'm telling you, whoever he was looking up to certainly didn't like him (laughs) and certainly wasn't going to help him out at all, (laughs) were they? Because he was all over the shot and um, I'm afraid, you know, we, we said at the start of the season, didn't he? that might have been a, a reasonable buyer for Arsenal with his experience and that. But I think he's just, you know, that in that game has kind of showed what you all fear with him. He's got that in his locker where he can have one of those games where he just is all over the shot, doesn't, you know, doesn't show his experience, gets caught out when he shouldn't get caught out. And obviously, you know, giving the penalty away and then compounded with the red card uh, and it. It just kind of shows him up for me, where, like, as you say, Dan, I don't think we'll see him in the Premier League next season. I think he'll probably get a move and go back abroad. Um, And a bit, you know, maybe that'll suit him, the slower little pace wherever he goes. But he certainly does Arsenal no favours at all when he plays like that.
2: Yeah, I think the Arsenal board, on the basis of that performance, will be glad that he was only given a one year contract. But, Drew, in terms of Arsenal, City toyed with him again. Now, if you look at their team that played against City. From Arteta's point of view, you could understand that he saved his better players for, in inverted commas, a winnable game, which we'll get to in a minute. But once again, regardless of the lineup that they put out, they were once more than often, shall we say, schooled by Kevin De Bruyne.
1: Oh, yeah. Kevin De Bruyne was absolutely fantastic in this match. Um, And he has been all year, right? This has probably been the best year of his career, especially in terms of assists. And so I don't think it's a shock at all that he was able to boss this game, right? If you look at Arsenal, I mean, Granite Shaka went down, uh, injured pretty early on, right? They did have youngsters in there, Willick and Ketia, Genduzzi. Um, And so, of course, Manchester City, the much stronger team, and with probably the Premier League's best player this season, Kevin De Bruyne, were able to control the game and make Arsenal look like buffoons out there. And then, of course, uh, David Luiz did his best. Uh, he, I'll say this. I think Chelsea have have... The best win from this because David Luiz, not only did Arsenal buy him, but they're paying his wages for him to be the best player on 19 other Premier League teams this season. (laughs) So (laughs) Arsenal had got the worst end of this deal. And agent David Luiz has done fantastic for Chelsea, Tottenham and everyone else this year. Um, So it's no surprise. And Manchester City, right, even though they're not close to the title, they clearly are a superior team than Arsenal, where we didn't need it, we didn't need this game to see that. Um, Injuries didn't help the Gunners, but Manchester City are just that much better. So, Mikel Arteta right now, he's obviously shaking his head. You know, he he doesn't have many quality options. Um, He has a lot of youngsters in the team, but when you put them up against players like Kevin De Bruyne and Manchester City, of course they're gonna struggle, and that's what happened here. So, Arsenal look absolutely horrendous in, in this match, But in both games, which I'm sure we're going to get to in just a second, they look like they have absolutely no fire in them. And there's no way they qualify for the Europa League. Absolutely no way.
2: So, Carl, what is it about Kevin De Bruyne and Arsenal? The Gunners must be sick of the sight of him because he either races his game, knowing I'm going to have some fun this afternoon, or the players he goes up against must be scared stiff because every time he turns up against Arsenal, he's an absolute joy to watch.
3: Yeah, you know, certain players, I think, can have that against certain sides, can't they, where they just seem to enjoy playing them. I mean, I think there was a spell, wasn't there, where Didier Drogba enjoyed playing Arsenal when he was at Chelsea because he would always score, he would always batter them. Um, and you kind of felt that that one player alone almost gave you kind of a head start and and, and one one hand on the three points. Um, and De Bruyne, you know... It's no it's no surprise you though. The guy is class and as Drew said, he's been brilliant all season, you know, even for the last two seasons. He's a great footballer, great passer of ball, great crosser of football, can hit a shot. Um, and unfortunately when you're coming up against a sort of side like Arsenal where they don't particularly like the fight um, they'll allow you plenty of possession at a ball. Um, players like that are going to thrive. Um, and yeah, he probably thinks, you know, he, wish, he probably sings, I wish I could play you every week, you know, um, because he'd love it. But Arsenal definitely won't want to see, won't want to see him again, and probably would hope that they wouldn't see him next season. But I'm sure we'll be, you know, we could probably just fast forward and have this same conversation next season.
2: Yep, you could just sort of capture it in time, and I can edit it in next next year. Absolutely fine, no problem at all. So, Drew. Arsenal, they've been far from a joy to watch. And after saving their big guns for that winnable game against Brighton, it was a plan that massively backfired. First up, though, talk me through your take on the Malpay leno incident.
1: So here, here's the thing. If I am an Arsenal player, coach, fan, of course I'm pissed because Leno ended up getting hurt. However, from the Brighton side of it, I don't think it was a dirty play. To me, yeah, I, I don't know if you guys will, will get this phrase, but but I'll explain it after, is the way I saw it was no easy buckets, which basically it, it, it's, it comes from basketball. But, you know, I'm going to play hard. I'm not going to take a moment off. And, yeah, I'm going to bump the keeper and say, yeah, I'm here. You're not going to be able to just scoop that ball up with no problem. Right? Mope did not go studs up or anything like that. He didn't shove him with his arms out or anything like that. And don't forget, when keepers come off their line – They usually go with a knee up as well to protect themselves. Um, So Leno could have done that if he had so chosen. Um, But Mope, I didn't think this was a dirty play. I thought it was a hard play. This is what forwards do. You tell the keeper, no easy buckets. I'm going to come here and I'm going to make your life difficult. And I'm going to bump you at times. Just like I would bu- just like a defender would try and bump any any uh, player trying to attack into the box trying to make a run, right you don't trip them or anything, but I didn't have a problem with this for mope, and you can't get mad at the- you-, you can't be more upset because of the resulting injury, right and the same thing when San took out Andre Gomez earlier this year. Right, It was an accident. When he got a red card, it was because of the resulting injury, not because of the actual play on the field, and that's wrong, and I think the same thing here. I don't think you can be mad at Mope because Leno got hurt. That was a freak accident. I don't think what he did was dirty. I don't think it was wrong. I saw it was hard-nosed, and again, no easy buckets, so I didn't have a problem with it whatsoever.
2: Carl, I guess the argument boils down to whether malpay needed to put himself about he's not going to go out and do him as such. You know, he's not really intending to hurt him. But if you're looking at that phase of play, it's pretty much ended. You know, Leno's got the ball, collected it, and you sort of think it's going to play out to a natural conclusion. That said, does he need to put himself about, or does he have the right to do so, as as Drew has alluded to?
3: Yeah, I think on this instance, you know, you could sit there and say, well, Leno had caught the ball just before, you know, just before he jumps, and you can clearly see, okay, the keeper's going to get it. But, you know, again, as Drew said, you know, that if, he maybe just felt, well, I'm just going to put myself there and let you know I'm about. Um, I don't think there was any intention for the injury. You know, I think we can all see that, that what's happened, unfortunately, is it's the, you know, as Leno comes down on the floor, he just gets his, his studs stuck in the ground, doesn't it, that that causes the knee to twist. Um, and, and nine times out of ten, you probably bump the keeper like that. He just falls to the floor, you know, without any problem. A free kick is given, and everyone gets on with it. I think it's only the injury that has caused everyone to question the tackle so much. Um, but I do believe, you know, goalkeepers are very, very protected. Um, you know, you're not allowed near them. And as Drew said, you know, they don't mind when they come out with their knee head height and and potentially risk taking your head off when they're coming to claim a ball. So they have got to expect a little bit of a bumping back and shouldn't get it all their own way. Um, and And i say it's only the injury that's made that seem like there's a problem. Otherwise, I don't think, you know, it's an issue. Normally, you just blow, free kick, and everyone gets on with it.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. The injury, as bad as it is and unfortunate, has just magnified the situation so much more. Any other time that happens, 99 times out of 100, as you say, referee admonishes the striker, the game goes on. So it just has obviously added that extra spice. That said, though, Drew, obviously losing your goalkeeper has been such a key component of... Arsenal's indifferent defense this season was going to be hard felt. Nicolas Pepe scored a very good goal to put them ahead, and at that point, with the personnel on the pitch, you would have thought Arsenal could have seen this one out.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe on paper, but yeah, <laughs> based, based on Arsenal's team, right? I mean, just just the week before, right? Uh, and uh, or not week, but against Manchester City, right? The defense was terrible, and so. Same thing here, you know, Arsenal have not been a good team, and so, yeah, Pepe scored a great goal, and, and credit to him, because he hasn't had the, you know, the the rosiest of seasons. But I think nothing in this Arsenal squad gives any sort of confidence. The, I mean, the only player I think you can count on right now is, is Leno, who just went down with injury, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, but he's not a defender. And so when it comes to surrendering late goals... That's not really something in his control. And so I think it's perfectly fitting that Arsenal gave up two goals in the last 15 minutes and one right at the death in stoppage time because that's who they've been, right? The fact that they were able to essentially hold on against Brighton for the first, you know, 75 minutes or whatever it was before Dunk's goal, um, that is what Arsenal has been this year, you know. It, it, Mikel Arteta comes from right the Pep Guardiola school and you know, yes, defense is important, don't get me wrong, but really everything that they do, everything under Pep and what I think Arteta is trying to do it's more about right positional play the patterns of play, it's more about the attack how they build up and all those things and when you already have a weak defense and then you're not going to focus on defending, of course you're going to start surrendering late goals when you have players like Mustafi, Rob Holding, who, you know, although he can't be good, hasn't played this year a lot because of injuries in the beginning of the season. So when you already have a weak defence and now you have a manager coming in who's not really going to focus on that in the beginning, of course you're going to give up goals. And especially when you're this, when you're this Arsenal squad without much talent, it's not a shock whatsoever that they blew another game giving up a late goal.
2: Carl, in terms of Arsenal soft underbelly, it's undermining any progress that has been made under Mikel Teta. So with that in mind, how do Arsenal fix this when there isn't really a lot of money in the pot come the summer?
3: Yeah, I think this is a real problem, isn't it? Um, and, and it's not pro- it's not just a problem that's that's come this season, is it? You know, it's been something that's been there for many seasons now. And, you know, the last few seasons, you could kind of just, you know, rinse and repeat as such if you're Arsenal fans. You know, games you shouldn't be losing, you're losing. Games where you don't give them a chance, they can sometimes get a good result. Um, I just think they've, they've probably just got too many inconsistent players right now. You know, Zaka can either be brilliant one week and then, you know, a complete utter horror show of next week. The same with players like David Luiz at the back. Um, you know, we saw in the Spurs game when we played them, you know, they can suddenly lose their heads in defence and suddenly just, you know, go mental and chop people down for penalties. You know, Gwendozi, he can have a great game one week, but then a real heads-gone game the next week. And I think that's their problem. You know, apart from up top with Lacazette and uh, a Bammyang, and even Lacazette hasn't set the world alight this year. But, you know, going forward, I don't think you fear for them so much. It's just defensively and that question mark around whether... when the the game gets tough, have they got players that can step up to the plate often enough? And I think that's it. And as you say, ideally, really, you need to fix that by bringing someone in who you know is consistent and can do that job. Whether Arsenal have got the funds to do that, which you would kind of, you know, from what we've seen, I don't think there's a lot of money there for them to play with. So I can't see until they can bring a real solid player in that position how that's going to change. You know, I think, you know, the only hope is, is that as a player like Wendouzi, um progresses year in, year out, he gains a bit more experience and learns when to do certain things when not. You get rid of someone like David Louise. Um that then obviously gives you a bit more confidence in the players behind you. Um, but whether there's the money in the pot to do that, I don't think so. And if there isn't, then I don't see anything massively changing as to how they set up and change what they've got there unless they've got some youngsters there that are ready to step up that um, can, can do that job and suddenly, you know, come
1: in and be consistent. But I think that's their major problem, consistency.
2: Absolutely.
0: If,
1: if, I, could, if I could make a suggestion real quick. Yep. I think Arsenal need to break the bank for Troy Deeney. And this is why. I don't remember, was it last year, this year, whenever it was, when he talked about Arsenal being soft and he loves playing against them. Well, they need to bring him in to just mentally, physically, and emotionally abuse these defenders every day in training and toughen them up, right? He said they were soft. We saw it in this match. We saw it against um, uh, Manchester City. I think that's what they do. They need to spend $100 million to get Troy Deeney from Watford, and he's going to toughen up their squad.
2: There you go, getting paid to be shot. I think Watford would snap your hand off. I take it, sold. A sensational move. And it was also sensational at the very end of the game. A huge plot twist. Who else to score the winner but Neil Malpay? A fantastic script in the game. Also, a fantastic win for Brighton. Their first of 2020, Drew.
1: Yeah, finally Brighton have gotten off the ground. It took them only uh, six months to do it. But, um, I mean, th- this is what... Uh, Neil Mopé, of course, was going to be the game-changer, right? He's he's getting closer to double digits in terms of goals. He's He's been their most potent attacker uh, this season. But then in, in this game, of course, who else was it going to be? Controversy in the beginning with Leno, and then not controversy on the goal. Um, but, of course, he was going to be the guy that sealed it for them uh, in their comeback. He's been fantastic for them. And I I kind of wonder if they're going to be able to to keep hold of him uh, next year or the year after that. Because I could see some teams trying to come in and get him as, as a backup or something like that to come on late on. Um, being that he's hard-nosed, he is going to play until the final whistle. And so I think Mope, uh, f- forget the controversy with, with Burn Leno, right? Uh, in terms of his play, I thought he did really, really well in this match. And, you know, he didn't back down, especially after the goal. Right when the scuffle broke out at the final whistle, when Ganduzi threw his arm into him and put his hand on his throat, Mope didn't back down. And then his words after it as well, saying, you know, Arsenal, um, I don't remember his exact exact quote, but it was, you know, they need to grow up. They got what was coming to them. Um, And so I think Neil Mope played villain and hero in this match very, very well, depending on which side you were on. So Brighton need him to continue playing well the rest of the season. And uh, Graham Potter's style of, you know, silky smooth passing, play out of the back, we're going to be, you know, this, this brand new sexy style of play that has become popular in recent seasons. Um, they're going to need to continue to do, to do that because beating Arsenal is one thing who, you know, who isn't very strong, but going up against some other teams on their schedule, they're going to need Mope to lead them uh, again throughout the final, you know, handful of matches.
2: Yeah, his quote was that he believed that Arsenal players are lacking in humility. And I don't think it could have been said any better, especially, Carl, when he referenced the Guendouzi fracar or scuffle, whatever you want to call it. How on earth has the midfielder avoided censure for, for grabbing him by the throat? The lack of consistency there is quite damning.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I say, I think that, you know, Malpi's had a great season, hasn't he? And, and after those comments at the final whistle, a 100% definitely a player Spurs should go and yep, get yep. in the summer just for, for shit shithouse on Arsenal going next season. Um, <laughs> but as you say, I, I, you know, that incident to me, you know, I didn't think there was that much in it and it's handbags, you know, handbag stuff. But. If we look at previous incidents that have gone before that where players have been banned, then I can't see how Guendouzi hasn't picked up a retrospective ban. Because, you know, we have only then got a look back, haven't we, last season to a game at Bournemouth where Son gets up and basically just pushes a player who's hacked him down yep. and he gets a red card for it. Exactly. So you've got to be looking there and saying, this is, I think, one of the things that really frustrates us as football fans is that, you know, one week a guy gets done for something and then a week later or two weeks later, a similar incident happens and there's no punishment whatsoever. And I don't think the FA help themselves or the Premier League with stuff like this because, you know, he puts his arm around his throat. Now, when you consider as well, we're coming back, you know, we're just coming back into football from the coronavirus and social distancing and everything like that that's involved, you would assume, you know, players are being told, you know, all right, you know, don't, you know, you've got to get close during games, but don't do nothing too silly. And then you've got a guy here who goes and starts off a mass near 22 man brawl, which is not what people want to see when football's just coming back from everything it's come <laughs> back from. So I can't understand how the officials haven't gone. Unfortunately, the evidence is all there. He puts his arm around his throat. That is a retrospective ban um, that he picks up you you would just have to get these people in front of you and say, explain your decisions. So explain this incident from a game here and then what the difference is between what's happened here and why this guy isn't picking up a ban. Um, because that it, it defies logic about how they come to these conclusions.
2: Oh, yeah, there's no logic. Like us say, some being the perfect example to compare it against. How's one sending off? How's one? No century at all. Crazy. But anyway, right, so we've got about... 12, 13 minutes to go and a lot of matches still to cover. So let's go a little bit turbo to end the show. Where should we go first? Let's, actually, let's not go to Tottenham versus Manchester United. If you check out mine and Carl's Come and You Spurs podcast, you get to listen to Darren Anson reflect on Friday night's match. So that's a recommended listen after this one. It saves us some time also. So let's next go to Bournemouth versus Crystal Palace, Drew. Crystal Palace could have been the perfect template for a team on the beach. On the basis of Saturday, that's far from the case
1: yeah I was kind of surprised uh, Crystal Palace showed as well as they did, but I think part of it you have to give give credit or credit in quotes to a, a very very sorry Bournemouth side right all year they've continued to deteriorate and become worse and worse, and now they don't even have Ryan Fraser playing for them. so credit to Crystal Palace for doing a good job right going in on the on the road, so to speak, um, even though there are no fans, uh, but going on the road putting in a good performance, taking advantage of a team that is is pretty, pretty horrific this season in a lot of areas. So I think Roy Hodgson deserves a lot of credit for that, getting his team up and excited for this match. Because like you said, they could have been on the beach. They could have just been hanging out. Played a very, very boring, you know, nil-nil or something like that. Um, But they didn't do that. And so I think credit to Crystal Palace for taking advantage of a sorry Bournemouth side that uh, really had no fight in them uh, in this match, but in the whole season in particular. So good job to Palace.
2: And, Cole, the Merseyside derby was not going to be a title-winning party for Liverpool, so the celebrations are still on ice. That said, were it not for a lack of target practice for Everton, the Toffees would have claimed all three points that evening.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, Everton will come away scratching their heads, won't they, as to how they didn't manage to pick up all three points in the end? Um, some great opportunities, and I say that that one near the death where Davies, I think it is, then turns it back, and you do you just wonder how the ball stayed out. Um, And like as you say, they're a real missed opportunity for them to kind of, you know, they're not going to get one over Liverpool, but it would have just given them a nice little bit of bragging towards the end of the season, in a season where Liverpool have been so dominant. Um, And and they would have enjoyed just stopping them getting a win though, towards that title party. But, you know, the performance gives them a little bit of hope going forward. And again, you know, they've been pretty decent under Angelotti so far, haven't they?
2: Absolutely. As I think if you look at their league position, it's not reflecting their performances. Something that me and Drew touched on last week, they're not a team that should be 12th. They are playing better than that position. So there's a lot to be confident for the Toffees going into next season. There's not much confidence, Drew, though, at Carrow Road. We spoke last week about the potential great escape. It's not happening. It's over. It's now a case of when, not if, they get relegated.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, this was a pretty boring performance from Norwich on in both halves. You know, at, at least in the first half, they were able to to take it nil-nil uh, into the break. But the second half, you see Southampton absolutely explode on them. Um, defensively, Norwich were very, very weak, uh, especially the, the first goal to Danny Angs. I, I believe it, it kind of started with a throw-in, which you should never allow to happen. And so Norwich, you know, there there was that that slight glimmer of hope that maybe they'd be able to escape. But I think you're right. After this performance... There's absolutely no way they'd do it because if they couldn't get it done against Southampton after keeping them scoreless in the first half, there's no way they're going to be able to do it against anyone else. So I think, unfortunately for Norwich, this, this game showed that, yeah, they're absolutely going down and uh, the season is, is, is pretty much done for them.
2: And Cole, Watford versus Leicester. It took a while to get going, but when it did, two great late goals. Leicester's won. I guess Chilwell, uh-huh. Chilwell's effort has probably put another five million on his price tag.
3: Yeah, you know, Chelsea might have needed to get in there just before this game started, (laughs) didn't they? Um, Oh, yeah. But no, what what a great strike it was, wasn't it? And as you say, two goals that you kind of just look back and go, wow, there'll be gold in a month contenders, that's for sure. And it'll take some beating to kind of, you know, get above those two. Um, Chilwell's strike was just brilliant, you know, to run on that way, hit it the way he does. And it's perfect just inside the post. You can't stop those. And the equaliser well, what an acrobatic finish um, that was. And of course, when the Leicester goal comes, you think, well, that's three points, you know, Watford are done, you know, but great spirit to go up the other end and force that corner and then get that equaliser, because that, in a way, is a really good point for Watford, um, especially given the time that they conceded the first goal. Um, and that, that, I think, will just give them a bit of confidence to go into the next game with. So, you know, Leicester, I think we're going to see Leicester now, maybe. I don't know if they'll pick up too many great results towards now and the end of the season. Um, they had some good chances that they they didn't take early on in that game, um, but yeah, I think Leicester are probably going to make the top four this season, so that'll be a great season for them. Um, but yeah, a, a decent, a, a poor result from their point of view, given the time they scored their goal.
2: Yeah, I think for Watford, it's a draw that almost feels like a win due to that manner of you know, not letting the heads drop, getting a vital point, the momentum gets going quite quickly. As for Leicester, I've got a sneaky feeling that Chelsea might overtake them. I feel that Frank's got the boys whipped and ready, and I think he's thinking. Don't worry about looking over our shoulders. Let's get higher up the table. And I think Leicester will be in their sights, especially with their difficult running. Finally, Drew, let's go back to you. I didn't see any of City's 5 final win, so you're going to have to tell me about it because I don't know anything that happened by those goals. So what do we learn, if anything, from the Etihad?
1: Uh, you learned that Manchester City can dominate everyone and Burnley had no chance. No, there's <laughs> there's nothing to learn from this I'll game. I mean the case. <laughs> Yeah, I mean th- this was of course going to happen. Um I think really kind of the biggest takeaway it, it, more seriously that that you could have from this game was uh Phil Foden and that I think he's going to be able to right cuz the question has always been he hasn't gotten enough minutes, you know, can he really fill the shoes of whether it's David Silva or you know whoever it is that's going to De Bruyne, he's a different type of player, but De Bruyne, if he leaves because of the the uh, the Champions League ban that might be coming, right, that was kind of the question, was can Phil Foden step in and immediately make an impact, and this season you've seen different occasions of that, but in this match as well, I thought he was absolutely brilliant, so I think if there is any takeaway from this match, it's that Phil Foden does have the ability and can do it, um, just the next question is will he be able to do it week in week out so I think great job for him and City absolutely blew Burnley away I think there was no question about that
2: and Carl we mustn't gloss over what happened during the game with the plane with White Lives Matter I think we can all agree nothing more than sheer idiocy
1: yeah,
3: definitely, you know, I think it, it, it is that occasion, isn't it, of like, you know, you've got to, you know, those are the sort of people who are not really educated as much as to what the actual, what, what everything that's going on at the moment's around, um, and you've just got to question people who do something like that. And quite rightly, I guess, you know, Burnley came out and turned around and said, "We want nothing to do with this." And you know they're going to investigate, and those who are found guilty are going to be kind of face the wrath and, and lifetime ban. So that's hope they do find who did it and, and they get the right punishment.
2: Yeah, credit to Ben Mee for his comments because it, you know, you can't gloss over it. But it would have been very easy just to sort of think, okay, well, let's deal with this afterwards. But to come out and say what he said, brilliant. Dealt with it really well, and I think the club have been. Um, also dealing with it as well as they can in the sort of circumstances, which, of course, aren't good. Right, so we don't want to end on a sour note. Let's end on a good note because we've got the first game week out of the way. We've done it, chaps. We've got through all that filler. We're there. We've done it. Well done, you two. Sterling effort today. Drew, start with you. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Dan. And, of course, it was great to talk to you and Carl as well uh, about the Premier League. Not what if, you know, not what ifs, what uh, hypotheticals or anything, but real Actual matches, real goals, real squads, real David Luiz mistakes. It was absolutely phenomenal. Couldn't be happier. Thanks for having me on again.
2: No worries, mate. I think as Rafa Benitez would say, facts. And Carl, thank you ever so much. For- <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you ever so much for your time. You've got that one out of the way. A few more to go. I guess to the end of the season. Actually, I don't even know when the season ends. We could be going forever on this one.
3: But thank you so much for this week. <laughs> Yeah, no, as Drew said, you know, I just echo everything Drew said, you know, it was nice to finally actually be talking about some real football um, rather than what if, what if this, what if that. Um, And let's look forward to these next few games that come now. You know, we've got the early, you know, no crowds in the ground. What does it feel like? You know, it's being done pretty well. So let's just keep that going and we'll see where we lie at the end of the season.
2: Yeah, next week I want to talk about things that we are seeing in the game now that might drip feed into when football gets back to normal. Things like nine subs, water breaks, that kind of stuff. So we'll get that into the conversation next week. There's just so much football, we haven't even got time for that. So in terms of the way that the games are coming thick and fast, the three of us can't really do it every straight after the game week. So we're going to stick to each Tuesday just because people know when it drops. So if we don't hit every game between now and the end of the season, it's not the end of the world. All the major talking points will be covered. I promise you that. And with that said, it just leads me to say that my name's Dan Tracy, This is The Real Football Cast, and until next time, goodbye.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.